At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And the fancy countdown is done, and we are live, streaming on Facebook Live on the Operation Tango Romeo page, and we, we are simulcasting. We, this will also come out on Operation Tango Romeo, the Tram Recovery Podcast, on all of our podcast platforms, Spotify, Google, and everywhere the good ones are found. Today on the show, I have a very interesting person. I have Courtney Boyer, who is a sexpert. Hi, Courtney. Hi, how are you? Good. I was thinking, let's talk about sex today, because that's not <sighs> awkward that's at all. A great idea. I would love that. All right. Uh, so let's talk about sex and PTSD. Okay, uh, let's do it. You kind of caught my eye on uh, on LinkedIn, and I thought, well, you know, uh, although it's not in the DSM, as you've told me, uh, sex addiction, uh, addiction, and um, uh, uh, PTSD. I have seen a link in it, at least with, with myself when I was younger, mm-hmm. and I've seen it in others as well. So let's start there. Uh, uh, is sex addiction even a thing if it's not in the DSM? Right. So it's a, it's a fun buzzword, and sex can be uh, problematic if you are using it as a coping mechanism to avoid feeling pain, to avoid processing but in and of itself, it's not an actual thing. Like clinicians, um, trained ones, right? <laughs> People who went to school, they uh, recognize that it's actually not a diagnosable condition. It's not something that you uh, refer to somebody as a sex addict, um, which you're like, but it's in the news and it's online. And a lot of religious organizations will use that term and they'll have a lot of um, programs affiliated with like uh, overcoming sex addiction and whatnot. But in and of itself, is it an actual thing? No, sex addiction is not. So what's the delineator then? Like what makes something an addiction and not an addiction? Yeah, that's a really great question. So there's different requirements for certain um, there's like abuse versus addiction versus dependency versus like just uh, an affinity. So you can be someone who um, is like a functioning alcoholic. Now, are you a- abusing alcohol versus are you addicted to it? A lot of it has to do with our physiological reaction. So do you have withdrawal symptoms if you go without drugs or alcohol? Um, that's a, a big delineator. So with sex, it there's no withdrawal in terms of like there's not a physiological like oh if I never have sex for the rest of my life like I'm not gonna die or if I go like if I've been having sex with like 10 people a day for you know years or weeks on end if I don't have sex with anyone tomorrow I'm not gonna have withdrawal some physical withdrawal symptoms now will I have some absolutely emotional issues definitely but there's not a physical association with it 
it seems like we're uh, an old army saying picking the pepper out of the fly shit or the fly shit out of the pepper or something like that. It, it seems like we're to, we're talking about uh, details. Gabor Mate um, uh, throws sex in the ring for different addictions and um, basically boils it down from a different point of spect- um, different point of view. If it's compulsive and it does harm to you or, or others, mm-hmm. it's an addiction, and he makes it that simple. But I, I, that, that doesn't exactly make it into the DSM under that uh, way of looking at it, though. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's important to know that it absolutely, if it's a problem, and you can be addicted to a lot of things, sure. and just because it's not in the DSM doesn't mean that you use it to cope or avoid or um, feel better. But knowing that it's not an actual medical model, you know, you start with this and this is the treatment uh, that we're going to recommend because of this, like that, that doesn't actually exist. And again, which could be kind of splitting hairs. If you are someone who is compulsively engaging in sex with individuals, especially if you are in a primary relationship and you are cheating on that individual if you are, you know, using sex as a way to avoid processing, to numb yourself, absolutely, that that's going to be problematic. Whether or not it's in the DSM-5, does it really matter? I mean, I guess if you are going to a therapist or whatever, but I think when people see themselves as pathological, that can also add this kind of layer. And what does being a sex addict, having that label give me? Um, and for some people, there is a sense of community or a sense of justification, like, oh, I can't help it. Or, um, and for other people, they feel more bogged down and more um, <sighs> limited by the, the definition. It's a double, um, double standard as well. If a guy is mm-hmm. uh, in- incredibly promiscuous, he's a stud. If a woman yeah. is, she's a slut. Oh, but, absolutely. So that's yeah. not very fair. Mm-hmm. But um, there must be a, a link between um, being really promiscuous and, uh, and low self-esteem, I would guess. Oh, absolutely true. And even the word promiscuous is, you know, subjective because, you know, what one person considers as promiscuous is, you know, like I grew up in the church. So anybody who wasn't your spouse that you had <laughs> sex with, you were automatically promiscuous. Going and to so hell. I think Get ready yeah, for the no, fires. Like, Hope you bring a fire extinguisher. No, seriously. It was, <laughs> yeah, purity culture, the whole thing. It was very um, shaping, I guess, traumatic. I don't know. There's a whole lot of thoughts on that one, but that's not what today's show's about. Um, so I think, you know, even being hypersexual, you know, if I want to have sex every day, if I want to have sex once a month, like who determines what is that? line that people fall over or under. What are the uh, norms? I used to hear that uh, two and a half times a week for for a committed couple was uh, kind of the going rate. Uh, where Where is that line nowadays and is it changing? Yeah, I don't know how you have sex half a time, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's lots of things I've seen in my years. I think it's a, mean, years a, I think it's a mean, mean average. <laughs> yes, I mean average. So what I have heard, and this is what I typically tell people when they ask me, because I get this question all the time, um, is, well, usually I ask a question with a question, like, or answer a question with a question. So why do you want to know? Because we as humans, we like to compare. We like to see where we fall in that. And so 
helping them to just be reflective of like, okay, but tell, depending on what the answer is, it, it doesn't really define or categorize you what into good or bad. So what I've seen in the numbers is cup, uh, committed couples who have sex once a week are the happiest. Now, how do you define happy? Again, that's another subjective term, but um, that's what I've seen in my years doing it. And that's, it stayed pretty much consistent about once a week. But uh, there, there isn't an average that two and a half uh, bullshit or. So I don't know what the average is in terms of how often people have sex, but usually people are concerned with like that happiness factor. I mean, I've seen couples who've had, I mean, I've worked with couples who have had sex every day and they have a terrible marriage. Um, I've worked with couples who have sex once a month and they have a great marriage. They just, you know, come to me for different reasons. So it's not necessarily the, I don't know the actual answer to the average in terms of activity. I look at in terms of linked to happiness or linked to success. So hypersexuality and hyposexuality, Mm -hmm. uh, what what are some of the causes of both? Oh gosh. So hyposexual, both can be due to hormonal um, deficiencies. So maybe you have a really increase and both for males and females, you can have an increase in testosterone um, that can increase your sexuality, like sex drive or sexual activity significantly. If you have low testosterone for women, low estrogen, um, those are going to uh, contribute to hyposexuality. Trauma absolutely is going to spur you on well, both ends. So it can, if you have, you know, we've seen, especially in kids, like kids who have been sexually abused, one of the signs is that hypersexuality. So they start to um, sexualize even the just most mundane uh, situations. They start to uh, dress more provocatively. They start to um, just kind of like be more sexually aggressive than compared to their peers. Um, so and at what, what age, we also see, oh, at, what, what age would you start to see that? Because I, I have seen exactly what you're describing in yeah. uh, like 11 year old girls um, yeah. uh, and 11 year old boys. I was molested as a kid uh, hmm, from the, from the age of, of seven to 12 roughly. And mm-hmm. uh, that uh, looking back, of course I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, it was obvious that something was going on, um, mm-hmm. but it, it just wasn't spotted. So what are some of the, right. uh, the, the warning signs for that? Yeah. So for sexual abuse, um, so your first question was, I mean, that can start at age four, three, four, you know, I mean, I've had parents reach out to me where they've said like, my kid is inserting, you know, things into their vagina or into their anus. Like, why are they doing that? What's causing that? Like, that's not a normal behavior. That's not, that's absolutely a red flag. Um, but usually the signs of sexual abuse aren't that explicit. So, you have regression uh, typically happen. So if you had a kid who was maybe 10, maybe they start wetting the bed again. Uh, They might engage in baby talk or uh, they may go the opposite way and just be completely withdrawn, completely like get away from me. Lots of anger, lots of explosive anger. Um, Like I talked about that hypersexuality, like everything is sexualized now that 
that fascination, that interest in sex, um, weight gain and weight loss. Uh, I've seen a lot, especially with my adult female clients who are, you know, struggle, have struggled with weight and are morbidly obese. A lot of them, a huge proportion of them were sexually abused as kids. And so there's this link to if I, you know, pad myself and shield myself, right, and make myself unattractive. And of course, this is absolutely happening subconsciously. If I protect, then no one will want me and then I'm safe and then I'm protected and I don't have to go through that pain and that betrayal and all of that again. And so there's this a lot of healing work um, around abuse and past trauma when women are trying to like lose weight or I could see that creating one hell of a nasty negative feedback loop because uh, if you're yeah. uh, becoming quite large uh, because of sexual trauma, especially if it's unconsciously and you don't realize mm-hmm. that's what you're doing, uh, yeah. then the self-esteem uh, just gets hit extra yeah. hard. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. well now I'm large and I, I see myself as not being attractive. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, it's this uh, terrible death spiral of low self-esteem. It is. And what, what I've seen too for um, so often is people think that if I change the behavior, right? Like if I get rid of all the bad food, if I, if I starve myself, if I, you know, per, binge and purge and do all of these things, which again is usually linked to sexual abuse and early trauma, that hatred for our body that they think like, oh, I'll get this surgery. I'll get this. Like that it will all be better. And what happens is because that belief has not changed, that I am lovable, I am safe, It my body is safe, it is safe to live inside this body, all of that effort is meaningless. It doesn't last. It's really a, a lesson in compassion as well. Um, hmm. In society, people who are obese are just judged with uh, uh, without anybody calling out the, the ones doing the judging. Absolutely. You, you know, and saying, hey, you're being a douche, stop it. And, uh, it's like, well, you know, and there's all these justifications for, uh, giving a hard time to, uh, to big people, but, Mm -hmm. but really, um, it's, it could be a very much a sign of, uh, of early trauma, but Mm -hmm. even if it's not early trauma, it's their life. Have some compassion. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not going to hurt you to be kind, but you know, what happens is usually the people who lash out and, you know, bully or malign or do these awful things to people who are different than them or look different, you know, it's because of their own issues and their own insecurities and pain inside that, you know, that makes them feel better momentarily and then just contributes to their own sadness. Is there anything else we need to add about trauma and sex? So I don't oh, know gosh. what else to ask, actually. <laughs> What do you mean? I mean, there's a lot we can add. Well, keep, well what, what, what are the, uh, the top misconceptions of trauma and sex? Um, I think that if you've, gosh, you know, there's generalizations on both sides, like that if I've been sexually abused, that I'll never be able to enjoy a healthy sex life in the future or sex will be forever tainted and destroyed for me. And um while there is a lot to overcome, it's absolutely possible to have a healthy sexual relationship and be present in your body and enjoy the sexual sensations. There's just a lot of work that has to be done in order to like rewire, you know, the brain and, and really overcome. And 
integrate uh, the past into the present. What's the biggest reason people come to you in the first place? I'm, I'm just going to make a guess before you answer that the reason okay. people come to you, that they think they're coming to you, when they start working with you, they figure out, oh, there's actually something else I got to talk about. Yes. Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah. So I, um, I used to predominantly work with overwhelmed and exhausted stay at home moms. And one of the symptoms was I'm not interested in sex. I don't, I'm not, I'm not interested in anything. I'm just tired. I'm stressed out and I don't know how to manage my life and I'm resenting my kids and my, my spouse and whatever. And so I really enjoyed, um, that population. And then as I've started working, I really have found myself drawn to working with entrepreneurs and high achievers. So anybody who defines themselves as somebody who's a go-getter, they look great on paper, they're super successful in terms of financially, and again, this is subjective, of course, but financially, I got the house, I got the kids, I got the dog, I write a high, exciting job, and I am miserable inside. I am disconnected emotionally, physically from the people in my house. I have no real love for myself. Um, so a lot of times people come to me because of that disconnection, um, because they're just like, I, I don't feel like this is supposed to be like, I, I did it. I climbed the mountain and I don't, I'm, what, not, what's the big deal? It's not filling the cup. Right. Exactly. Right. They've spent their whole life trying to create out here all of the things that are supposed to fill them up inside. And so you ask, what's the real, real reason, right? It's because of that lack of self-love, lack of self-trust, lack of self-worth. Do you see the pattern of the self? So when I say I'm a relationship coach, a lot of people think that that has to do with, oh, yes, sex is absolutely one of the relationships that is a part of a lot of people's lives. But Really, it's about our relationship with ourselves and how we see ourselves and, and our ability to connect with our own purpose and gifts. The idea of, I would be happy if, I will be happy when. When, There is yep. no mm-hmm. if, there is no when. Yeah. It's, no. Not, it's mm-hmm. not external, it's internal. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so many people just, they think that they can beat that formula. But when I hit a million or when I hit this many followers or when I hit this many medals or missions or whatever, and it's like, okay, I'll save you some heartache and some time. But It's an you know. internal process, not an external mm-hmm. process, which is also right. accountability. Um, uh, one of the pet issues that I have is the idea of, for, of forgiveness. There's, um, mm. there's a couple of influencers on, uh, on social media, Instagram in particular, uh, who are like, you don't have to forgive. That's bullshit. You know, mm. if you, if you forgive, it's, uh, it's somehow in their head. Uh, and they have a lot of people that are agreeing with them that if you forgive, mm. uh, you're somehow letting the abuser off the hook. Right. And, absolutely. Uh, from, from that's, that's their block. Why, mm-hmm. uh, what would you say about that? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Oh. It's right. Like we want to make sure that that person gets held accountable, right? This idea of my pain, it needs to be like justified. There needs to be justice to this thing that happened to me that you did to me. And so I get the desire and the need to want to punish the other person by not forgiving. But what we don't realize is the only person that suffers is us. Like 
they don't, they don't care, right? Like they <laughs> yeah. don't care. Um, I, I have a really not silly example because in my daughter's life, my oldest is 12. Um, we put her, we put our kids in the German system, wanted them to get that um, experience and learn a foreign language. And she had a really, really tough time um, at the sixth grade level going in. And so we pulled her out, we put her into a different German school and it's been a great fit, but she had a really hard time with this concept of forgiveness. And I said, I asked her, I go, who, who's suffering from this anger inside you? And anger is a secondary emotion. And so knowing that underneath that anger is fear, sadness, disappointment. So helping, you know, her to get in touch with which one of those is this really about? But it's so much safer to stay up here, right? It's so much safer to be angry and to push other people away and to say, no, you deserve that. Nope, you don't. I'm going to push you away and you're going to pay and I'm going to make sure of that. But the only person that suffers is you. It's an internal process, not an external mm-hmm. process. You can't make Absolutely. anybody feel bad. No, no. <laughs> As nope. much as much yeah. as you wish you could try, you can even putting them in jail doesn't isn't enough. You know, it's like nope. okay, now they are physically accountable because they are physically mm-hmm. in jail. But if they don't think they did anything wrong, <laughs> your your bitterness is still not going to be uh, doing anything. My nope. my mom Absolutely. is physically ill to like really really bad, and mm. has um, uh, a bit of dementia and isn't doing mm. well. And I. I'm convinced that a big part of that is her inability to forgive things that happened 35 years ago because hmm. it's all she yeah, talks I, about. I absolutely believe that trauma or emotions, even emotions, right? It doesn't have to be something traumatic, get stuck in our body if we do not process them, if we do not give them attention and they will continue to fester and they will continue to grow and accelerate until it, we physically stop or like something massively causes us to, oh, I can't breathe. Oh, my heart has stopped. Oh, like I don't, I have no memory. Like I just, there's such a mind-body connection that people don't understand. A lot of people don't understand. And it's just so, it's become so integral to my work. And it's just so powerful how that emotional and physical healing are connected. I don't know if um, it's an easy answer, but uh, when there is a sexual imbalance of desire in a relationship, which has Mm -hmm. got to be super common, right? (laughs) It is. Like super common. Uh, And it's probably usually the guy that wants more than than, than the woman, I I would guess. Is that a fair assumption? Um, In heterosexual relationships, typically, uh, yes. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Short answer, yes. <laughs> okay. In most cases, not in every case. And, right, um, right. But see, there's an imbalance where uh, uh, the man typically is like, come on, twice a week or I'm just dying over here. I can't even think mm-hmm. right. Uh, and and the woman of the relationship is like, eh, every month or so is fine. You know, like mm-hmm. how, That's a big gap. Uh, right. Like, how do people fill that gap? Yeah how do they fill it or what are some options they could fill it? <laughs> uh, all, all of the above. So there's a lot of resentment that ends up happening. And what ends up, what I see happen um, is there's a lack of communication of expectations. So I usually don't even see those conversations happen. Of 
usually, so if the female partner is the one who has the lower interest in sex and the male partner has the higher interest in sex, usually there's this belief on the female's part that he wants it every day and that just overwhelms me and I can't even, like, instead of just asking, hey, like, if you could, in the best of situations, how often would you like to be intimate? And most people are like a couple times a week. Not every day, right? And so then it seems more manageable because, and, you know, women's cycles, we, we cycle in our hormones. Like there's a reason a lot of women only want sex once a month. Like that's just how biologically we're wired. So not that that's right an excuse. You're like, well, that's just the way it goes, guys. Good luck. But knowing that and then knowing how to increase that sexual desire and sexual interest and energy. So many women are just surviving on fumes. And so the idea of sex at the end of a really long, exhausting, like emotionally and physically, especially if they're the stay-at-home parent with little kids, like that, that's not even on their radar because they are just in mommy mode and like, no. So what I encourage couples to do is one, have the talk of what's a great meet, like, where do we want to meet here? What's your ideal? What's my ideal? Okay. Then we offer, are you open to me taking care of my own needs? Right? So the option of self-simulation, masturbation is watching movies or looking at porn or right. Like again, most couples do not have these conversations because there's such a sense of sexual shame around self-pleasure, around bodies in general. Um, So again, having those conversations, what's okay, what's not okay. And then if we're still stuck, right? And it's like, well, she won't let me do this or he won't let me do that. And this is where I am. And this is where I want to be is then there's usually a larger issue that needs to be addressed. I heard it uh, uh, said recently, it was like uh, motherly advice. Son, if you want a woman to have an orgasm, it's all about trust. Uh, Hmm. I was wondering what, uh, what your thoughts were on that idea. So an orgasm is, it's like the ultimate release of control. You know, like you are at the point in your body where you cannot most, and that's why a lot of women struggle with orgasm. One, they don't know how their body works. And so they don't realize that just sticking a penis inside a vagina is going to, Oh, okay. There's an orgasm. It doesn't work that way for women. Most women, so over 60%, need clitoral stimulation. Do you hear you that all you 18-year-olds out there? What? <laughs> all you 18-year-olds out there? Do you, are, yes. you, are you listening right now? You're doing it Listen, wrong. Listen, get out. You're doing I'm it an wrong. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, yes, so one, women don't know how their bodies work. Men sure as heck don't know how a woman's body work, <laughs> That's for works. Sure. Yeah, and so... They lead, this leads to this frustration there. Everyone's up in their head, not, not down here, head, this head up here. And so then it's like, why aren't I? Because when we look in the movies, we look in porn, we see this example of sex as like, it's so easy. It's loud. It's like on crack, you know, like, but it's, it's for entertainment and people go there for education instead of to be entertained at first, typically. And so when you're, you know, trying to learn how to drive and you're watching NASCAR, 
Like you're going to have a lot of problems if that's how you go out and take your driver's test as if you're driving NASCAR. Same thing with porn, right? Like, no, just jamming it in, you know, scream. Like that's not, uh, stop, stop. So back to your, <laughs> your question about the trust. You, if we trust ourselves enough to be safe and feel in our bodies, if we trust ourselves enough to communicate and know that our needs and desires are going to be accepted and affirmed, if we trust our partner enough to hold us and love us and be present in the moment with us, absolutely. Like that is where I see the best types of sex um, and the uh, proliferation of orgasm, I guess you could say, um, occur. Uh, and a lot of, especially for women too, is the in-between. So it's easy for men to flip that switch and be like, sweet, all right, yep, let's do it. <laughs> Whereas a woman has to like, literally like undo her baggage, her, you know, her body image, the kids' schoolwork, the boss, you know, like the dishes. There's so many things that she typically has to unload in order for her to be ready to engage there. So as a male partner, how can I lighten your load? How can I help? How can I love you in a way that makes you feel more like a woman and you feel and connect with that self-trust and that be present and safe in your body? You can't do it all, but gosh, it sure can't hurt. (laughs) I can see that men are often shooting themselves in the foot um, where, where they're causing their own problems in the bedroom, but uh, because they're criticizing or complaining about other things. And then mm-hmm. when it comes to the bedroom, uh, their partner doesn't feel safe. And right. uh, then it, that negative feedback loop again, mm-hmm. but they're, but they are the problem. They are the solution. So what are some things to tell men if they want to get more action in the bedroom? Uh, uh, when they're outside of the bedroom, how should they be behaving and what should they be mindful of? Yeah. So one of my favorite books, and this is actually what I give for as a wedding gift is the five love languages. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? Sure. I am. Yeah. We, okay. At our um, peer support groups, we talk about that book all the time. Oh, great. Yeah. That is love your partner the way that they want to be loved. So like my husband and I do not speak the same love language. And so in early in our marriage, I wasn't aware of the book. And so that was definitely like, I don't understand. Like I'm doing this for you. And he's like, I don't care if you do that for me. (laughs) So once you start to love them the way they feel loved, that is a huge, huge help. So for some, that's cleaning the, you know, kitchen, that's doing whatever. I have a, a girlfriend who is married. She's got four boys And she told her husband, like, I am happy to have sex with you every night, five five nights a week, whatever it is. If you want that, after I cook dinner, you clean up and you put the kids to bed. After that, I'm all yours. And you better believe he is sure as heck motivated (laughs) to get that stuff done. But for so many women, that I mean, it is so draining at the end of the day for moms to be like, oh, and then I have to do bath, and then I have to do, you know, all this. And it's like, I'm so depleted that the idea of trying to rally and be present, right? Like, 
And there has to be a lot of mindfulness and communication because the mindfulness comes in as first you have to know that that's what's going on for you. You have to understand that, oh, that's what I'm feeling. And then the communication of expressing how you're feeling. And uh, if your partner isn't a safe place to communicate with because they are easily triggered and they feel like uh, everything that you say is a criticism of them. Well, now it's, uh, let's talk to a divorce lawyer because that's where you Yeah, exactly. And And I would tell couples that when I would work with couples, I'd say, hey, look, at this point, you guys are probably like on your last, you know, string or whatever here. And you are, the next call is the divorce lawyer. I said, I can help you save your marriage. However, if you don't want to put in the work, you don't want to be patient and put in the time, just you're gonna, go ahead and save yourself a lot of money and just go call the divorce lawyer. Because it, it does, it takes work. Like if you do not have that pattern of communication and like you said, mindfulness, being present, being self-aware, and then being able to confidently communicate your needs, desires, your frustrations, whatever. All the therapy and all the coaching in the world ain't going to do shit for you. Let's talk about the work. Because uh, as a guy that in his first marriage did an ass load of counseling, this, that, and the other, and I'm still a little bit angry about that because not one of them ever looked at it and said, I wonder if he has PTSD. Oh, I know. Oh my gosh. Are you freaking kidding me? So I was undiagnosed for well over 20 years. But anywho, um, (laughs) uh, damn it. Um, When I've seen time and time again, when people talk about doing the work, what they they think is the other person's got to work. (laughs) The other person's got to work on uh, being a better partner for me. Mm -hmm. And they're not looking inside like, oh, I got to be a better partner for them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've had like single or non-couples, right? So just an individual come to me and be like, so I'm having marriage problems, but it's really my husband that needs to be fixed, but (laughs) he won't come. So I guess like I can talk to you and I'm like, sweet, this is going to go well. But no, actually it ends up being a pretty transformational because they realize that the power is within them to make significant changes regardless of what they're their partner does. And that's the cool thing, right? The work, you know, you can make a significant impact in your work life, in your marriage, your your partnership as a parent if you are willing to show up and be open to the tools. And I think that's a big like misconception too of like there's counseling and therapy and coaching and like there's so many different modalities out there and a lot of people will go to one thing expecting the other. And so it's really important that you like consumers know what they want or at least where they kind of want to go. So when you were talking about nobody died, you know, rec asked me if I had PTSD or if I had, you know, abuse or whatever trauma in my, in my past, a lot of times, like that's just not in, those people's wheelhouses, you know, like for as a trained therapist and as a coach, like I'm able to do both. Right. I don't, I don't do therapy anymore because I don't want to just sit and listen to people talk about their problems. And that's a lot of what therapy is. It's understanding, okay, giving a safe space because they don't have a safe space anywhere else to a lot of reflection, a lot of great questions. I want to take people from where they're at, understanding how their history has shaped them and move them to where they want to go. Be that guide to get there. But 
not everyone is qualified to do that. Does that make sense? I'm with you. <laughs> okay. I'm with you. There's um, the world of coaching as well, and it's it's interesting. And I'm I'm definitely con- I'm actually building a coaching program. Where, oh, awesome! And for the same reason, you know, I mean, even if I was trained how to process deep trauma, I wouldn't want to. Because yeah. I've uh, worked on enough work f- emptying my own damn cup, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and there's just too much empathy there. So if I was working with somebody, uh, the the empathy fatigue would be just not healthy for me. But mm-hmm. the idea of coaching, just taking somebody where they're at, uh, breaking it down between constructive thinking and destructive thinking, and helping mm-hmm. them be mindful enough to realize which one that they're doing, and mm-hmm. and start creating the positive habits which reinforce uh, the positive thinking into a positive feedback loop. That's that's more interesting to, to mm-hmm. me. And but hmm. Just thinking about ketamine clinics now, I'm getting, I'm distracting myself with all the things that are going on in my head. It's like a bag of cats some days. Oh no. <laughs> but that's all right. Um, it, it seems to me that when people come to you and it, it's circling back to a previous question, when they, when, sure. when they come to you, they think they're coming to you because of sex issues, but it's, it, mm-hmm. uh, it, that's always the symptom, uh, not the, absolutely, not absolutely. Yeah. S- sex is yeah. just the symptom, never the cause. Absolutely. The, yeah, the disconnection. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I cannot even tell you how many times I've worked with couples, individuals, and it's like, that that's the primary thing. And it's funny because, you know, I have this training and that's my specialty, but I rarely will you like spend multiple, I mean, like I've created a program about like for women on called Rewrite Your Sex Story. And that's really just transformational and fantastic for a specific population, but for male and female clients, you know, like I I had one client actually who did come to me for a couple of reasons. And one of them was erectile dysfunction. And once we started to dig in, because I know it's not about 99% of the time, right? There are very small percentages where it is just a biological issue organically. I get that, right? So, which is why I always encourage patients to check have their uh, hormone levels checked, which we talked about that previously. Um, but once we started to dig in and realize that there was so much pressure he was putting on himself, he hadn't given himself permission to grieve the loss of a business that he had. Um, and just, it went away, went away. We didn't do any pills. We didn't do any potions. It was just understanding these deep seated beliefs and some of the grieving process and, you know, some other magical things that I like to do with my clients. And um, yeah, it, it's, it was so encouraging to see that. Not exactly the way it's portrayed by the pharmaceutical Pharmaceutical industry. companies? No. <laughs> it's like, well, once you hit 45, you need a blue pill. That, that's right. uh, that's kind of how they process it, but yeah. not, not true at all. Yeah. My grandfather fathered his last uh, child at the age of 73. Oh my gosh. It's like, you go, buddy. <laughs> Getting it done, sir. All right. (laughs) You are a champion. (laughs) Uh, Let's close off talking about porn a little bit. Um, Okay. uh, There are different things that are said about it. uh, Mm -hmm. From one extreme, it's just evil, period, the end. And on on the other, it's harmless. And I'm going to guess it's somewhere in between. 
um, some of the uh, things that are often said is uh, that porn gives you an unrealistic idea of what sex could or should be. And mm-hmm. I, I've never seen porn that reflects that uh, sentiment, but um, what what are the uh, pros and cons of porn? You know, how, uh, what, what, what uh, like regular porn, I guess, not, not the stuff that's like, like obviously not, not a good idea. Yeah. So it's interesting because to most, to the, they like to call it the male gaze or the male eye for a lot of men that, that view porn, it doesn't seem problematic. And I'm talking about like on Pornhub and a lot of those other free porn sites, but what a lot of research has shown is that many of the actors or the people in those, especially the women, are trafficked. Mm-hmm. Um, they're drugged, right? They're not there out of their own free will. Um, there's a lot of, uh, not subconscious, but uh, covert sexual violence and um, uh, misogyny that happens within it. I mean, Again, it's not like blatant for some of it, but there is some um, degradation, not some, there is quite a bit of degradation of women in a lot of those sites and how the women are treated, how they're compensated. Um, a lot of it is considered unethical pornography. Um, I I wouldn't say a big fan, but I think that um, feminist it's called feminist or pro-female um, pornography. So it's typically directed by women. Uh, the actors are compensated. It's They are actually enjoying it. Like it, they're not acting per se, but they're like, their needs are being, not needs, they're physically, physiologically reacting to it versus somebody who is like, yeah, it's three o'clock, my scene, let's go type of thing. Yep. It's it's more um, consensual and more communal, relational, whereas a lot of the other porn is not. Um, so I would, if you are a consumer of porn, um, I would definitely encourage you to consider the source of where you're getting it from and know that all porn is not created equally. So that, what you're just described, is that uh, a classification of porn that somebody could search for? Yeah, if you typed in feminist porn um, or uh, porn for women, by women, or um, uh, I'm trying to remember, I, I haven't searched it in a long time. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There are lots of great sites that are, and even, you know, a lot of them do require some type of payment too. So, you know, compensating and this idea of voyeurism versus entertainment, you know, like I would go see a Marvel movie and pay, you know, 10 bucks to, to, to watch that for a couple of hours. And yet I want to be able to access porn without having to pay anything and not expect those sex workers to be compensated, you know? So just kind of like thinking about the, the ethics of how I consume pornography, there's absolutely people on all sides who are going to say it's harmless. It's no big deal, whatever. Um, I, I encourage people to like ask why they either are for or against it. Yes. And like some of the reasons I was just explaining, there's a lot of unethical, there's a lot of mistreatment. There's a lot of misogyny. Um, and there's also some really well done safe and not. So again, why, why are you consuming it? What is the purpose of consuming it? Obviously for most people, it's 
to get off. But I think a larger thing of that is just to escape. A lot of people consume pornography because they just want to get out of their heads. They just want to disconnect and just feel that rush of hormone, right? The, the dopamine, the oxytocin, all of those pleasure sensors going off. And a quick, easy, fast, and socially-ish acceptable way to do that is by consuming porn. Courtney, I think we'll we'll, we'll end her right there. Okay. <laughs> That's perfect. But uh, thanks so much for making the time. Uh, it's been a yeah. good conversation. I thought I think we covered a lot of really, really good ground. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to the feedback for, for this one. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to see it too. And um, again, I'm sorry that I don't look super professional today. <laughs> I misread that it was audio and video. So. <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all good. But uh, please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring.